Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. On the morning of Thursday, February 24th, President Vladimir Putin declared the start of military operations in Ukraine. I decided to conduct a special military operation. It aims to protect people who have been bullied and subjected to genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. For that, we will strive for demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and will bring to justice those who committed multiple bloody crimes against civilians, including Russian citizens. We urge you to lay down your arms immediately and go home. I will explain. All servicemen of the Ukrainian army who comply with this requirement can freely leave the area of military actions and return to their families. Whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. We are ready for any outcome. I'm your host, James Rogers, and for this episode of the Warfare Podcast, I spoke to former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO, Jamie Shea. Jamie is a 38-year veteran of NATO. He's met Putin many times, sat across the table from him, discussing and debating NATO-Russia relations. Jamie is the ideal person, the most experienced person, to tell us about what NATO actually is and why it bothers Putin so much that, in theory, Ukraine could attempt to join. This episode was recorded on Wednesday the 23rd of February, the evening before these military operations began. But with Jamie's extensive experience, I was fascinated, as you will be, to learn about just how and why relations between Putin and NATO have degraded so much over the last 20 years and what might be next on Putin's agenda. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. How are you doing? Very well, James, and thanks for inviting me on today. Not a problem at all. I'm sure you're a very busy man at the moment, especially with the tensions going on with NATO and Russia. And so it's really great to have you here to give us a little bit of, well, history into NATO and a little context in terms of what's going on with NATO, Russia and Ukraine. But before we get into all of that, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your own history and your own roles in NATO. Well, again, thank you for the invitation tonight, James. 
I was a member of the NATO International Staff for 38 years, so it was basically my life and my uh, career. I started in 1980, nine years before the Berlin Wall came down. The Cold War was, in fact, far from over, because in my early years at NATO, we had a major crisis with the Soviet Union over the deployment of intermediate-range nuclear weapons in Europe and massive peace demonstrations against uh, NATO's nuclear weapons on the streets of Western Europe. So I had a, a fairly exciting start getting into that. Anyway, as I mentioned, I stayed for 38 years. So I saw the Cold War through, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Soviet Union, the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe, and then NATO finding new missions to keep itself occupied, enlarging, and I know that's the theme this evening, the former communist countries of Central and Eastern Europe, doubling its membership in the space of 30 years from 15 to 30-odd states and also taking on so-called stabilisation and intervention missions in the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, of course, where NATO uh, stayed 20 years until recently, and air campaigns uh, against the Gaddafi regime in, in Libya. So there was never a dull moment. Uh, there was always a sense that as soon as one chapter finished in NATO, another chapter uh, opened. And I left in uh, October 2018, at the age of 65, just at the time when the wheel was coming full circle, if you like, because NATO was swinging back towards a more familiar paradigm uh, of competition competition, maybe even confrontation with Russia, the balance of power and the contest for influence over Central and Eastern Europe. So we're at a point now where you say that NATO has come full circle in many ways, and but a lot of people are still surprised at this animosity between Russia and NATO. Is it the case that NATO was pretty much established as a means to try and counter or balance the power in Europe between the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, and, of course, NATO powers, Western powers. Was that not the whole purpose in the first place? Was that not why NATO was established? Well, there was a famous quip by Lord Hastings Ismay, who was Churchill's aide-de-camp during World War II, and Churchill rewarded him by sending him off to become NATO's first secretary-general once the alliance was established in 1949. And he was always asked the question, well, you know, why NATO? And he used to say, well, it's very easy. It's to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. And although it was a quip, there was a lot of truth in it, because NATO was the first alliance where the United States permanently engaged itself uh, to upholding security in Europe. You remember after the First World War, the Europeans were hoping that the United States would do that via membership of the Covenant of the League of Nations, which was largely an American creation. But then the Senate in Washington turned its back on that particular dream of President Woodrow Wilson. And we all know that the United States uh, lapsed into isolationism before the Second World War and the Europeans were left to fend for security by themselves. So what was really unique after the Second World War was that the United States reversed a historical tradition of not being involved in European security affairs. That was George Washington's advice to the American people in his farewell address, stay clear of entangling alliances. So fortunately, the Truman administration didn't heed that advice and did commit itself, the United States, to an open-ended military defense of Europe. This was called for by the Europeans, who in fact absolutely did become worried about the growth of Soviet power after World War II. The fact that uh, the cooperation 
During World War II, the so-called United Nations to defeat Hitler quickly turned to animosity. Once the Third Reich had uh, fallen, the way in which, of course, Stalin helped himself to large chunks of territory in Eastern Europe, but then also imposed communist regimes uh, on most of the eastern part of the continent where the Soviet army was in occupation, right up to the uh, border between, of course, East Germany and West Germany, as we know. And that was a violation of the Yalta Agreements, at the end of the Second World War, to hold free and fair elections. So it wasn't so much that the United States sort of came imposing NATO on the Europeans, which is often the view that many people have. It was quite the opposite. It was really the French and the British at the time who were worried about their relative uh, weakness, military weakness, vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, and who really wanted the United States to act as a balancing force. And, and frankly, the willingness of Washington, as I say, to go along uh, with that. But but when Hastings Ismay spoke about keeping the Germans down, that wasn't just a joke, because there was not only the worry about the Soviet Union, but particularly the French worry about a revival of Germany, defeated twice by France, and once again, trying to reassert itself in Central and Eastern Europe. But unlike the trying to contain Germany, which is what the French had tried to do before the First World War and after the First World War, this time around, NATO allowed the French to have a much better policy, which was to integrate Germany into an integrated military command structure where all of the German forces were not under German command, but under NATO command, with everybody keeping an eye on them. And, and for many years, by the way, subject to limitations too. Those limitations were not really lifted until the after German unification in 1990. So there was a sense that at the time when NATO was founded, it it sort of dealt with the three classic European security problems, fear of a major Germany, fear of Russian interference in European uh, affairs, and finally, the inability of the Europeans to find an effective balancing alliance system whereby they could do that job by themselves. So that was really the genesis of it all back in the late 1940s, Uh, just a, a coda or conclusion. The Americans actually didn't anticipate that NATO would be a long-lasting affair. They originally wanted a treaty lasting only 10 years. Finally, the Europeans convinced them to uh, go for a treaty lasting 20 years, which would have expired in 1969. But then they agreed that NATO, after all, was a good thing. I mean, the Cold War was still going on in 1969, and NATO had sort of proved a very cheap insurance policy. For the European powers, it had made defence into a collective responsibility, and everybody agreed that that was much a much better approach than the sort of individual efforts to guarantee security through you know different entangling alliances before the Second World War. So after 1969, there was a general agreement to make the treaty a kind of open-ended affair. And therefore, it means that NATO has now gone past the 70th birthday mark, which makes it the longest military alliance in recorded history. It's now even outstripped the Athenian alliance against Sparta in the centuries before Christ. I mean, that's quite the achievement. So tell us, Jamie, what do you mean by collective security? What does it mean to be a member of NATO? What obligations and commitments do you make? The idea behind collective security is, of course, people share the roles and the risks and the responsibilities of defence. So uh, the basic deal is that you agree to defend an ally, and in return, the ally uh, agrees to uh, defend you. It's a kind of two-way affair. And it also means that uh, each uh, individual ally, because it has the defence guaranteed by NATO, 
can specialise in certain roles and missions. It doesn't necessarily have to have a big army, a big navy, a big air force. It can, for example, a small country in Eastern Europe can quite clearly see that it can't afford an air force, so it should allow the Americans or the British or the French or the Germans to do that. But it can specialise in medical units or uh, chemical biological warfare units or or military engineering units or, or, or whatever. Iceland is in NATO and doesn't even have armed forces uh, of its own, but it's contributed by sending doctors to to Afghanistan or by running Kabul airport. Yeah, air traffic controllers. Yes, yes absolutely. You know, so it, it's it's pretty much a, a mixed bag. And I think the flexibility of the system is one reason why it has survived, because it basically allows countries to have better security at a lower level of defence spending than was the case before. If, if you go back, you know, to the 1930s, you find countries desperately increasing military budgets and arming at a furious pace, while clearly seeing, in view of the deteriorating international situation, you know, the rise of Hitler, the rise of Mussolini, the rise of the Soviet Union, of Imperial Japan, that they were getting less uh, security and having more risks all the time. So it's rather like an insurance policy, James. The, The idea is that you pay a premium which is affordable, and in return, you get uh, excellent coverage. But of course, the alliance rests largely on the willingness of the United States to provide the basic security guarantees, because there's no doubt that the United States is by far the largest spender in NATO. It spends twice the average of GDP on defence than the Europeans do, and that's historically been the case. It provides well over 60% of all of the vital capabilities on which NATO uh, depends, including the important nuclear deterrence. Um, and, and we all know that when it comes to reassurance, countries like Poland and the Baltic states don't sort of really phone up European NATO members for help. They first of all say to Washington, send us the 82nd Airborne Division, please. Send us your F-35s or your F-117s or your Apache helicopters, as we are seeing you know, vis-a-vis Russia at the present time because they know that that's the thing that really does deter Russia and really gives them that kind of reassurance. So, yes, it's a, it's a collective organisation in which everybody contributes, but if it isn't really underwritten by the United States, as it has been historically, then its deterrence value would slide quite uh, quickly. So you mentioned already a little bit about this expansion during the 1990s. Tell us, how much did NATO grow? What were the rationales behind this? And what are the implications of this rapid growth? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, what happened is that in the beginning of the 1990s, NATO really didn't have enlargement on its agenda, not because, as the Russians pretend, NATO had given Moscow a guarantee that it would not enlarge. That's not true. That guarantee was never given. But it was because at the time in the 1990s, NATO was thinking that the future would lie in partnerships, informal security partnerships, you know, military training, military assistance to the new member states of Central and, and, and Eastern Europe. By the way, many of those states also initially were attracted by the idea of going back to neutrality for instance, like Sweden or Finland, or joining the European Union to have economic prosperity while not taking on the burdens or the risks even of a military alliance like NATO. But in the middle of the 90s, the mood changed because the countries of Central and Eastern Europe elected leaders like Harvard in Czechoslovakia or Lech Walesa in Poland, who really sort of felt that NATO had given the Western Europeans uh, good protection. 
They historically had been exposed, you know, to Russia, to Germany, to other great powers, and that they wanted the same level of protection, you know, to join the Western club and have the same benefits that the uh, the Western countries had had. So it wasn't that NATO, like a recruiting agent, you know, went around Central and Eastern Europe saying, who would like to join? No, it wasn't that at all. It was the countries of Central and Eastern Europe saying, you know, this partnership idea is all very well. But it's second class as far as we're concerned. It's not giving us, you know, that seat at the table, that ability to have a voice, that ability to participate in decision making, that ability to be protected in a way that you guys in Western Europe have enjoyed. And so they started banging on the door. Uh, asking for uh, membership. I, I think also you had at the time the administration in the United States of, of Bill Clinton with people like Madeleine Albright as Secretary of State. She had come from Czechoslovakia as a war refugee. And that generation had a sort of strong sense, not of guilt, but of obligation. They felt bad about Yalta. They felt bad about the division of Europe and the inability of the United States to prevent that at the time. And they felt that it was a kind of historical debt to repair Yalta and the division of Europe by bringing these countries in, into NATO. The, the Russians clearly were in a weak position in terms of being able to prevent that. But there was also a belief that, you know, over time, it wouldn't really matter so much because, you know, with maybe a few more zigzags along the way, given its historical legacy of not being a democracy, Russia would nonetheless also evolve in a democratic direction. It, you know, it, NATO opened its door to Russia in the belief, you know, maybe like you with your girlfriends in the past, where you say, the more you get to know me, the more you're going to think, find me lovable and <laughs> the more you're going to like me kind of thing. The you know, Russian fears of NATO were based on you know, ignorance or a lack of knowledge what NATO was all about. And if we set up, for example, institutions with Russia like we did in the late 90s with the Permanent Joint Council and then the NATO-Russia Council, you know, Russia would attend meetings at NATO, it would sit around a table and it would say, what have we got to worry about? These guys are nice and they're not threatening us at all and they're even looking to cooperate with us. So, there, were, you know, the British have an expression, James, you know it well, called cakeism, that you could have your cake and eat it too. And I think there was for a while in NATO a sense that you know, we could enlarge the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, we could bring them into the family. Russia was not a threat, so it wouldn't really entail you know, big increases in defence spending, big military deployments in Eastern Europe. Russia was not a threat, so it wouldn't increase the risks for existing NATO members to have to extend security guarantees to the new members. And a row, Russia would, yes, you would moan a bit and hue and ha uh, along the way. Eventually, as I said, NATO-Russia cooperation on a parallel track would gradually reconcile the Russians to living with an enlarged NATO. And indeed, uh, you know, NATO always said that you know, Russia could be a candidate in the future. No guarantee, but that it could have the same perspective if it evolved in a democratic direction as well. So there were actual talks and possibilities of, of Russia potentially joining NATO one day? Well, they never sort of got down to any kind of negotiation. Uh, and Russia never formally submitted a request to join NATO or to start the process by applying for NATO's MAP, sorry, NATO jargon, Membership Action Plan, which is sort of slightly equivalent to the way in which you negotiate different chapters uh, of EU accession in different areas before you can join. Um, but uh, I, was at a I was physically present at a meeting with Vladimir Putin in Moscow uh, around the turn of the century. That was the younger Putin who was sort of less bitter and resentful about NATO and European security than he is obviously today. 
And, uh, you know, Putin was in a cooperative mood in those days. He was the first person to phone George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks and pledge cooperation. We had Russian troops with us in the, the Balkans and in Kosovo. I even went to inspect Russian forces who were participating in the NATO peacekeeping missions, real peacekeeping missions, not the Putin type of peacekeeping. And, you know, we, we had a NATO information centre in Moscow, a NATO liaison office. We were doing uh, cooperation with the Russians in Afghanistan. But they didn't like terrorists any more than we did. We were cooperating with Russia on piracy issues, you know, across the board. And so that was a hopeful time. And Putin, at the meeting that I attended, uh, you know, said to the NATO Secretary General, you know, tell me, what does it take to be a member of NATO? Maybe we're interested. And uh, so I'm not saying that Russia came close. But it was not as unthinkable then as it obviously would appear to us today. Ever wanted to know more about some of the greatest stories in history? Kings, queens, knights, monks, peasants, battles, castles, love, hate, treachery and revenge? They're all waiting in the greatest millennium in human history. Well, yet anyway. I'm Matt Lewis, and my co-host Dr. Kat Jarman and I are waiting to tell you some of the most exciting, exhilarating, fascinating, and less well-known stories of the Middle Ages. What are you waiting for? We've gone medieval with History Hit. Are you coming? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
there was a, a ripe time, you're saying, a, a thawing of relations where things were going well, which seems so strange to us today, as we see a really angry, disgruntled Putin, who almost appears fed up, betrayed, tired, annoyed, angry, and desperate for a little bit of, uh, well, bolstering of Russia's own pride and potentially a little bit of revenge against this NATO expansionism. Is it that NATO expansionism that has really seen these relations between Putin, between Russia and NATO, just tank over the last two decades? Well, there were many, many factors in this. And of course, James, as you know, as a political scientist yourself, one of the difficult things, particularly when you're dealing with dictators and their very sort of phony view of the world, they do live in bubbles where they have people telling them what they want to hear. Uh, and so don't think that because somebody is a leader, they're necessarily connected with reality. We, we know from history that that's often not true. And listening to Putin's uh, TV talk the other day, I was quite alarmed by you know the way he, which he distorted facts. And I thought to myself, God, if he really, really believes this, then we're in deep trouble. So it's not always easy to know what part is excuse, you know, trying to portray themselves as the victim, the innocent party constructing a propaganda narrative, and what part is, is deeply held uh, belief. But sure, yes, um, given Putin's behaviour, there must be a part which is deeply held belief. It's not just NATO enlargement. I mean, late Russia was also irritated by the way in which uh, NATO intervened in Kosovo in 1999 to stop uh, you know, Serb paramilitaries persecuting the Kosovo Albanian population. And NATO believed that it stood for human rights, that it was upholding the principles of the UN Charter. Many other countries supported NATO and what it was doing, preventing genocide, whereas the Russians saw it completely differently that NATO was acting without a UN mandate, uh, therefore it was violating international law, it was intervening in the sovereignty of another country, precisely what we're accusing Russia of doing in Ukraine today. You know, it, it was killing people because of you know the, the obvious accidents, the so-called collateral damage, as it was called at the time, that, that occurred. And uh, NATO, having been a defensive alliance, and told Russia that it was a defensive alliance, suddenly showed that it wasn't, because it was, as Putin saw it, carrying out aggression against other countries. So there was, if you like, already then a sense that Russia and NATO were looking at the same world, but through different parts of the telescope, with totally different mirror images of, of what they were up to. And the same thing happened in Libya, where fortunately for NATO, Putin was out of power at the time, and uh, his deputy, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, was occupying the hot seat, keeping it warm for him until constitutionally Putin could come back. And Medvedev upset Putin by actually abstaining in the United Nations, thereby allowing NATO to carry out a bombing campaign against Gaddafi in Libya, again to uphold human rights. But again, the Russians saw this as NATO acting as globo-cop, as they would have called it. So that was an irritation as well. I, I think also, fundamentally, you know, Putin generally believed that once the Soviet Union had collapsed and the Warsaw Pact had dissolved, that was the Russian Defence Alliance in Eastern Europe, NATO would no longer have a raison d'etre and would fade away as well. And I think you know, he was quite uh, surprised to see that that didn't happen and that what the Russians were looking towards at the end of the Cold War, which was a kind of pan-European security system, you know, modelled on the old League of Nations, where the large powers would be in some kind of security council, calling all of the shots. You know, Russia would be up there as part of a very exclusive club. And it didn't happen at the NATO-Russia Council. Russia took its place as just an, a member like any other member 
you know, between Slovenia and between Romania with no particular special status. And uh, Russia simply wasn't willing to accept a European security system based on equality, where little Luxembourg or little Iceland or little Slovenia would have an equal voice or an equal vote. So I think there were lots of irritations building up. Enlargement is, is a difficult one to call because when NATO first enlarged, it made it clear to Russia in 1997 that this would not lead to any military build-up of NATO forces in Central and Eastern Europe. This became known as the three no's. No nuclear weapons, no combat forces, no foreign troops on the territory of the new member states. In other words, NATO was very conscious that it should show the enlargement to Russia as being about Eastern Europe politically moving west and not about NATO militarily moving east. In fact, I can recall many times when defence ministers or foreign ministers from Eastern Europe states would come to my office and complain to me, Jamie, we've been in NATO for 15 years. Uh, this is one particular Polish foreign minister. I don't forget it. And all we've got to show for it is a virtual training centre in Bydgoszcz. Uh, what he meant, you know, where are the American tanks? You know, where are the divisions that we were anticipating? And of course, NATO deliberately didn't do this because it argued at the time that the real security challenges were not in Eastern Europe, but they were in Afghanistan or elsewhere. In other words, you know, Eastern European countries joined NATO and found that they were being asked to go to Afghanistan rather than the Americans were being asked to come to Warsaw or, or Vilnius or, or, or Tallinn and, and, and so on. So to be frank, it's only really in response to Russia's aggressive behaviour that the situation has changed. It's only now, since 2014, when um, Russia illegally annexed Crimea and virtually sort of declared the age of cooperation to be permanently over. Um, and more recently, with what you've seen in Ukraine, it's only now that NATO has seriously started to think about defending its Eastern European members. Up until now, NATO has had just 4,000, 4,000, that's hardly going to frighten Russia, uh, forces in the three Baltic states and Poland, virtually nothing in Bulgaria or Romania. So um, what we have to try to tell Putin, although it's not an easy message to get over, he's rather like the pyrotechnic firefighter. You know, he's the chap who sort of starts all of the fires and then moans that he has to come in and put them all out. For example, Ukraine was pledged to neutrality before 2014. It wasn't looking to join NATO. It was only once the Russians started to bite off chunks of Ukrainian territory that they got worried and started to turn to NATO. So in a way, we're in a kind of difficult situation where you might call it a vicious circle, where what Russia does drives countries closer to NATO. Finland and Sweden have now reopened their should-we-join-NATO debate, which certainly wasn't there a couple of years ago. Uh, so Russia does something aggressive, frightens countries that then come to NATO, and then Russia complains that NATO is getting bigger and you know, victimising Russia, so they have to respond even more aggressively to stop it. And I suppose the big thing now is how do we try, you know, particularly with Russia, to break out of that vicious cycle, which is spiraling ever more towards a, a larger sort of confrontation? Well, Jamie, you've, you've asked my final question. How do we do this? What does victory look like to Putin here? Or what at least would he accept as some sort of consolation to save face domestically and potentially to avoid a full outbreak of war in Ukraine? The point, of course, James, is nobody knows. And one of the big mistakes we always make is thinking that because we're rational, hopefully sensible, hopefully sort of semi-intelligent political scientists, at least trying to make you know, 
educated guesses, even if we can't always be right. But we sort of imagine that because we see the thing rationally and think, well, what's he got to gain by occupying Ukraine? How's that going to help Russia? You know, what if he gets a bloody nose and loses a bulk of his army? You know, what about the sanctions, which are obviously going to hurt the Russian economy? So, yes, from our point of view, all of this doesn't seem to really make any any sense. And we can't sort of understand why Putin is going ahead with it. But of course, uh, if we're in his mind, as you said earlier, uh, we're seeing a completely different view of reality. And, of course, a different sense of what Russia's interests are. So we don't know what Putin is up to. I mean, I suppose, you know, the hopeful sort of indication, although it's still very grave in what it represents, is that Putin will sort of claim some kind of Pyrrhic victory by recognising the independence of these two enclaves in the Donbass, uh, which are basically been under Russian control anyway since 2014. You know, Russia has had lots of troops there, even if they haven't worn Russian military uniforms. And uh, he, he will then sort of claim that that recognition is the victory and then withdraw his forces from the rest of Ukraine. And it will be similar to what we saw in 2008 when he attacked Georgia, where he declared the uh, sovereignty and independence of two parts of uh, Georgia called the Southern Ossetia and Abkhazia, left some troops there. They've been there ever since. But I think with Venezuela or maybe Cuba, the only country in the world to recognize those provinces, even Belarus, his closest ally, and China don't recognize them. And we'll have a kind of status quo. Georgia won't be able to get them back because it would mean war, at least not yet. But the Russians have not made a step, of, unlike, they, unlike with Crimea, to organise a phony referendum and then integrate them into Russia as part of Russia, which, of course, would make the crisis even worse. So we'll have a kind of new status quo, you know, which won't change the situation radically because, as I say, the Ukrainians have not controlled that part of the Donbass for eight years and were not likely to get control of it. It said that they weren't going to use force to get control of it, and it's been very much dominated by Russia. So yes, uh, without fundamentally changing the situation, Putin can declare, okay, I've gone to the next stage, I've got a victory, and climb down. I think he will still have sanctions, but the sanctions clearly would not be as grave as if he uh, launches an attack on Kiev or Kharkiv or Mariupol or Badansk, you know, other major Ukrainian cities and ports. And Ukraine would still remain, at least for now, as a democratic sovereign state. But, but James, having said that, I think there will be changes. I sense that this time round, things are different. You know, the, the West has really woken up in a way that it didn't before in Georgia in 2008, or even over Crimea in 24, uh, 2014, to the fact that Russia is now an antagonist, that it does not wish as well, and is set on a path of confrontation. There will be more to come. Obviously, as long as Putin is in charge, we'll maybe get a breather over the summer, but then the next crisis is sure to come. NATO, as I say, will have to change its posture and strategy in Eastern Europe, because even if Putin stops this particular crisis, Russian forces will remain in Belarus and will be much closer to NATO borders than they were before. This will decrease warning time for NATO and make NATO allies in Eastern Europe very nervous. So NATO will have to change its posture, which obviously will not be received well in Moscow. Europe will have to look at decreasing its vulnerability 
on Russian gas and other Russian products. It imports 40% of its gas from Russia at the moment. That obviously, particularly at the moment with the high prices, lays Europe open to all kinds of blackmail and intimidation. So reducing vulnerability will be, I think, very, very important because that will make it easier to take sanctions in the future if you're not harming your population uh, process as well. We we'll need to look seriously about how we make Ukraine more resilient. If we're not going to defend it, we have to at least help it to defend itself. And I think that will be a much greater program of military assistance, weapons to Ukraine. Putin will complain and say that's provocative. But as he's being aggressive vis-a-vis Ukraine, even when NATO is not arming the Ukrainians, I don't mean NATO, the organization, but NATO member states doing it, you'll be damned if you do and you'll be damned if you don't. So might as well do and help the Ukrainians to defend themselves. And I think finally, you know, we, we now uh, unfortunately recognize that we're in a long term competition with Russia, as we are with China. You know, hopes that we could sort of you know, have partnership or that you could have compartmentalized cooperation. You know, OK, we're arguing about Ukraine, but in Afghanistan, we're cooperating or on the Iranian nuclear file. So, you know, let's be happy with with that. But that's not happening because we see Russia, for example, pushing the French out of Mali and interfering in Libya and in the Middle East, trying to frustrate the West globally, you know, sending Tupolev bombers to Venezuela uh, in Uncle Sam's backyard. You know, we see a more like in the days of the Soviet Union, a more generalized competition between Russia and the West and not just, you know, over Ukraine. We see Russia and China coming closer together, not yet a formal alliance. But what does that mean for the future as well? So rather like the Cold War, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but rather like the Cold War, we're going to have to have a George Kennan, you know, or a Pulnitsa, you remember those names, coming up with, you know, how do we deal with this country which has gone rogue, which has the potential to do us harm, and where we don't, in the immediate, have many levers of influencing its future behavior. How do we deal with this sort of rogue, uh, which unfortunately is big and powerful and well-armed, in a way that can sort of take us safely through this period of confrontation without a war, until, rather like in 1990, the miracle of change is once again ignited, old totalitarian regimes fall, and we have a chance to map out a better future. Jamie, there's so much food for thought there. We're going to get you back on the podcast again in the future to tell us so much more about this and dig deeper into these issues. I know everyone who's listening is going to have been fascinated by what you're saying. So tell us, where can people hear more of your thoughts on these important issues? Well, I, I do my own podcast, James, and I'll have to say it, it's by no means as, as famous or as well followed as yours. So happy to partner with you on a future occasion. But it's on the, the website of Friends of Europe, the think tank where I work. And I do something called Keeping an Eye on the Geopolitical Ball. Not exactly an original title, but it gives me a chance every week to zoom in on something. Although, James, what I tend to do is not always focus on the big news of the day because everybody else is covering it. I try to find something that's not on the front page of the newspapers, but which is nonetheless significant for geopolitics in the 21st century. So it's on the Friends of Europe website. But again, James, I I thoroughly enjoyed it today. And thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to be one of your guests. Not a problem at all, Jamie. Thank you so much for your time. And we're going to pop a link to your podcast in our show notes. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks. Bye for now.
Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfare at historyhit.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.